Welcome back to the Perfect Puzzle, where we are now going through Holy Week day by day. This is part two of Tuesday of Holy Week. Uh, thank you for staying with me and staying with us. I ask you to listen closely to the words that God has to say to us. And Father, we thank you again for this opportunity. I ask you to help me teach that you fill me with your Holy Spirit and that your Holy Spirit could continue to be an active part of your listeners' lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, picking up on Tuesday. Uh, Jesus is being questioned by the religious authorities. He's in the temple court, uh, you know, and then we come to question five. We did four of the questions in a previous study. And now we're going to move on. Question five. How can the scribes say that Messiah is the son of David? You know, the previous passage concluded no one dared to question him any longer. That's in Mark 12:34. And then in verse 35. Jesus is asking a question. It's a rhetorical question that probably delighted the crowd. How can the scribes say that Messiah is the son of David? Now, then he goes on and answers the question He's refer by referring to Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, a couple of things here. You know, his answer confirms that David wrote the psalm and attributes David's words to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have a problem with that, I suggest you have a much worse problem than wondering who wrote that psalm. Jesus, you know, he asked a logical question. David himself calls him Lord. How can, how then can he be his son? You know, this is the most frequently quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It was also read in the past at the coronation of Israel's kings. Jesus' quote's not a denial that he is the Messiah, but it's an affirmation that he is more than the Messiah. He is a descendant of David. And at the same time, he's David's God. You know, Jesus being seated at, at God's right hand is a way of stating he is in the position of power and glory. It's an acknowledgement that he will be victorious over his enemies, even though at that moment things look pretty ominous for Jesus. You know, he's turning his attention to the Pharisees and scribes who were his harshest critics. Now, one thing about this passage I want you to be careful of. It's often being accused of being anti-Semitic. But the, that accusation ignores the fact that Matthew and Mark, who recorded Jesus' words, you know, they were both Jewish. Luke was a Gentile. Furthermore, Jesus spoke these words, and he was himself Jewish. Jesus' words are no sterner nor stronger than the condemnation of Israel by the Old Testament prophets. Nor were Jesus' words directed against all Jewish people. He's directing his words toward the Jewish leadership. You know, the New Testament extols the virtues of many faithful Jewish people. Simeon and Anna, Joseph and Mary, Zechariah and Elizabeth. You know, that list could go on and on. Matthew's account of Jesus' final words are an expression of deep grief 
over the nation's spiritual condition. That's in Matthew 23, 37-39. Those are hardly the words of someone who's anti-Semitic. Now, Matthew's account of the strong denunciation is much longer. It's 36 verses than Mark and Luke's account, which are actually both about three verses. <clears throat> now, the probable reason is that Matthew's intended audience, the Jewish people, needed to hear more of what Jesus thought about the current Jewish, Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. You know, each evangelist, though, gives enough information to com communicate Jesus' in intolerance of religious hypocrisy. Mark's summary of Jesus' words highlights three major charges against the scribes. In Mark chapter 12, 38 to 40, first, they were selfishly ambitious. They looked for honor from men rather than from God. They walked around in long robes and yearned for respectful greetings in the marketplace. The second thing, they were arrogant. They loved the best seats and sought to sit at tables with the most prominent people. Whether in a religious setting or a secular one, they always wanted pride of place with the most important people. Jesus' approach was so different. He came to minister and serve those who were on the fringes of society. And then the third point, the scribes were greedy. They preyed on the most vulnerable, devouring widows' houses. You know, with just a few words, Jesus has laid bare their crooked hearts. Then Matthew includes Jesus' lament over Jerusalem in verses 37 to 39 of Matthew 27, Matthew 23, excuse me. Jesus' pronouncement of doom didn't diminish his love for the city or his love for her inhabitants. He wanted to protect them like a hen protects her, chick, her chicks. But their refusal to welcome him as their Messiah sealed their doom. Now, verse 39 is a transition from a prophecy of judgment to a description of that judgment suffered in the invasion by Rome in A.D. 70 when they pretty much they pulled down Herod's temple. Now, in the final moments before Jesus left the temple, he expressed to his disciples how impressed he was with an unnamed widow's offering. Jesus situated himself in a place in the court of women that allowed him to watch as people placed their offerings into the temple treasury. Now, this was called the trumpets because there were these long tubes that people would put their money into so that when it fell in, oh, it made a, a loud noise. You know, Jesus didn't comment as he watched the wealthy place large sums into their treasury. But after seeing a widow drop in two tiny coins that were worth very little, he called his disciples together for a teaching moment. You know, widows were some of the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. Now, those two small coins were worth one sixty-fourth of a denarius. So this offering that she gave would have been barely enough to buy a very modest amount of food for a single meal. The point is, from a worldly perspective, her offering was not consequential. The key lesson on giving learned from this impoverished lady, lady is that you don't measure your giving by amount, but by the amount of sacrifice. 
Now, the widow's devotion to God is contrasted with the Pharisees and scribes by its placement in where it's placed in the book in the books of Mark and Luke. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he watched the rich young ruler turn around and walk away from him because he wasn't willing to sacrifice everything to follow Jesus. Now here we read about a widow who found the pearl of great value and gave her all to obtain that finest of pearls. So the questioning period is now over and we come to what's commonly called the Olivet Discourse and it's recorded in each of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew's account significantly longer than Mark and Luke's. The interpretation of the discourse is complex and scholars still debate its exact meaning. But the issue they have is determining when Jesus addressed the events surrounding destruction of Jerusalem and which part of it addressed his second coming. Now as for the destruction of the temple, Jesus had been addressing it throughout the week. The cursing of the fruitless fig tree, the clearing of the temple, his condemnation of the religious leaders in the, depicted in the parable of the vineyard owner, and his stern rebuke of the Pharisees and scribes. You know, Jesus made it abundantly clear that divine judgment was coming. Now, his disciples may have thought the destruction of the temple in Christ's second coming would happen simultaneously at the same time, in other words. Now, I understand Jesus to be answering both questions. Some aspects of the discourse focus on the destruction of Jerusalem and others on Jesus' second coming. At certain points, the events surrounding Jerusalem fall in A.D. 70 foreshadow events at Jesus' second coming. Uh, we'll probably at some point in time have a, have a complete study on the Olivet Discourse because it takes some time to, to go through and split the words. I'm just going to give a, give a general overview. Now, after spending a day in theological debate with the religious leaders, now the questioning is over, Jesus left the temple, you know, going back to Bethany for the evening. Even though the disciples had seen the temple many, many times, they were still astonished by its beauty and its grandeur. Jesus' response to their comment concerning the temple must have probably stunned them. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. That's in Mark 13, verse 2. The Jerusalem temple was the largest temple complex in the ancient world. With its white stones, gold trim, gold-covered roof, the temple complex glistened in the sunlight. Jesus and his disciples would have exited the city through the eastern gate, crossed the Kidron Valley, and walked up the western slope of the Mount of Olives, which overlooked the city. We've talked about that earlier. Now, Jesus' first four followers, who throughout the gospel seem to be his inner circle, so to speak, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, questioned him about his comments concerning the temple. Now, Matthew makes it very clear that the disciples asked Jesus two questions. Tell us, when will these things happen? And then question two, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the first question has to do with the destruction of the temple, and the second with Jesus' second coming. 
So after the disciples questioned him concerning the timing of those two events, Jesus made a helpful clarification, indicated there would, would be some preliminary events that are not signaling, signaling the immediate end of either Jerusalem or the end of the world. He warned them, watch out about the danger of deception, specifically about people claiming to be the Messiah. He then listed a series of nat natural and moral disasters people often wrongly associate with the immediate end of the world. Now, Jesus' use of the Greek term that is translated must, de, D-E-I, indicates God's sovereignty over these events. He said, it is not yet the end. And these are the beginning of birth pains in Mark 13, 7 and 8. But just as birth pains precede childbirth, God's judgment will inevitably follow. He warned his disciples to be on guard concerning the coming persecution. He didn't want them to be surprised when persecution came. Because the persecution, persecution is going to be both religious and governmental. He then added, It is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. In verse 10, Despite tremendous persecution, the gospel, the good news, would be proclaimed throughout the world and would take place before the destruction of Jerusalem. Paul understood the gospel to have been proclaimed throughout the world in his day. The disciples were encouraged to not be afraid when they experienced persecution. The Spirit would assist them in defending their faith. Now the world's hatred of Christianity would be so intense that family members would betray family members even to the point of execution. Ultimately, though, the world's hatred is the result of its hatred towards Jesus, and they expressed it in their persecution of his people. Although the hatred would be worldwide, those who endure to the end demonstrate their genuine faith in Christ. And then we move on to the central section of the dis discourse, which is quite difficult. It's the abomination of desolation and subsequent events. Now, myself, I understand two things to be going on here. First, Jesus is describing the destruction of, of Jerusalem, so he's answering the disciples' first question. Second, the devastating destruction of Jerusalem foreshadows events at the end of human history. He's answering the disciples' second question. Therefore, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple foreshadowed the final days of human history. I don't know how many ways I can say that to make it plain. The phrase abomination of desolation has caused no small amount of controversy. It's found three times in the book of Daniel. Number one, in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the, the discreet destruction is poured out on the desolator. Then in Daniel 11.31, his forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. And then moving on to Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, 
from the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, the prophecies in Daniel first point to 167 B.C., when the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. Jesus' prophecy picks up on Daniel and points first to Titus's entry into the temple during the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Second, and finally, it points beyond that event to the final enemy of God, the Antichrist. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, Revelation 13, verses 1 to 8. Now Mark inserts a parenthetical warning to his readers to be wise and careful in reading this material. That's in Mark 13, 14. Jesus provided two exam five examples of the desperate situation that's going to take place in A.D. 70. One, those in the city should flee to the mountains. Two, no one should seek to collect their possessions before fleeing. Three, those in the fields must not return to their homes. Four, those days would be extremely difficult for pregnant women and those with young children. And five, they should pray that these events do not take place in the winter, when survival would be very difficult. But Luke makes it clear that these events related first to the fall of Jerusalem. Luke 21.20, 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. But Jesus' language is so intense that his words foreshadow a time beyond the fall of Jerusalem and on to the final days that will culminate in Jesus' return. You know, Jesus says if God did not cut short those days, no one will survive, but God will cut them short because of his elect. That didn't hardly happen with the Roman, invade, the Roman war in A.D. 68 and the destruction of, of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. You can't make that fit the whole world. Just as in the days leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, the final days, God's people must be careful not to be deceived. Jesus spoke of deceptive signs and wonders, as Paul instructed the Thessalonian believers in 2 Thessalonians verse 2, 9-12. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, and I'll let you finish reading that yourself in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Then you have the return of the Son of Man. The synoptic evangelists describe in brief words Christ's second coming. Jesus warned in Mark chapter 13, 24-25, that after that tribulation, that's the one just, he just described, there will be signs of cosmic upheaval. Now these events should be contrasted with the early reference to natural upheavals of earthquakes and famines. And he quoted from Daniel to describe his glorious return. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Jesus will descend from heaven, gather his people from one end of the earth to the other. You know, there's signs of nearness, but it's still an unknown time. Now, Jesus moved on from the events of the final days to the absolute necessity of vigilance on, on the part of his Christian followers. He'd already spoken of the destruction of Jerusalem and 
the final days of human history, and now he's going to conclude his teaching. Jesus applied the parable of the fig tree to the present discussion. You know, as we've seen, Jesus combined the fall of Jerusalem with the foreshadowing of the great tribulation of final days. So if we're correct in seeing Jesus as intentionally blending these two events, then the same can likely be said of Mark 13, verse 30, and its parallels, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. He's talking about the generation living during the ministry of Jesus who would be alive when Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70. But beyond that, when the events of history begin to unfold in the final days, that generation that sees those things starting to unfold in the latter days will be alive for Jesus' return. So in a world destined for destruction, the disciples' only hope was to place their faith in God and his word. And Jesus referred to my words, which include all he said in the discourse, but even beyond that to everything he taught his disciples. Because Jesus' words are eternal, his teaching are more enduring than the fundamental elements of creation. The basic elements of creation will eventually pass away, but God's words will not. Look at Isaiah 51.6. Look up to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And its inhabitants will die like gnats. But my salvation will last forever. And my righteousness will never be shattered. So when we read now concerning that day or hour no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father. Mark 13.32. We need to remember that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we shouldn't forget that the main point Jesus is making is the importance of being ready. If the Son himself did not know the day or hour, we as Christians should keep from, you know, going looking for such knowledge for ourselves. If Jesus had known, he surely would have told us. He told his disciples a series of parables to encourage vigilance and faithfulness. In some of these parables, Jesus' return was sooner than expected, and in others, it was later than expected. But regardless of when he returns, Christians must be ready, because until that time, God's people are to remain busy serving him. Waiting on him, though, does not encourage idleness, but it encourages service. And then Tuesday ends on an emotional note. You know, Jesus has predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the world. You know, he spent a good part of the day in a series of confrontations with his enemies. And at each turn, Jesus' wisdom and knowledge of Scripture confounded his opponents. He humiliated them in front of crowds. And Jesus and his disciples then returned to Bethany for an overnight rest. Now, this has been a full day for Jesus. You know, they discovered the withered fig tree, predictions of the destruction of the temple, end of the world. He battled his harshest critics. You know, there's a few truths here that stand out for special comment. First, Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. He made that clear the previous day by his clearing of the temple. He reiterated his feelings on on Monday and his lengthy condemnation of Pharisees and scribes. 
And he made it evident that why we serve is as important as how we serve. You know, the Pharisees and scribes did a lot of the right things. They prayed. They participated in the sacrificial system. They gave alms. But they longed for the approval of men more than the approval of God. You know, most people begin their life of service to God for the right reason. But over time, some become enamored with the praise of people. Hypocrisy and pride blind some people to their own sin and excuse their perspective on what godliness is and what kingdom service is. Those whom Jesus condemned demonstrate that you can perform religious activities but not have a love for God. They failed to believe their own scripture. 1 Samuel 15:22. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? The Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. You know, the knowledge of the scriptures made them arrogant rather than more loving. The Pharisees and scribes are examples of the danger of religion without conversion. Then we learn from the impoverished widow that no good deed done for God's glory goes unnoticed by God. As far as she knew, no one's watching her. She placed her two small coins into the temple treasury. But she had no idea the Son of God would use her as an illustration of genuine generosity and godliness. She's the exact opposite of the Pharisees and scribes. While they performed their righteous acts to be noticed by humans, she gave her gift expecting no recognition. You know, we can live our lives for the recognition of others or for the glory of God. The first one brings momentary notoriety and acclaim, but the last one brings an eternal blessing. Third, the most important truth Jesus taught on this day was about his second coming. You know, the day and hour of, of his return are not known, but the reality of it is certain. You know, the church must be spiritually alert until that day. God's people should not spend their time trying to determine something they can't know. And that's when will Jesus return. Rather than speculating on the timing, we need to remain spiritually alert, and it, which involves serving God's people, which is doing the right thing, for God, serving God's people for God's glory. And that's the right reason. Then, whether his coming is sooner than expected or later than expected, God's people will be found ready when he does come. And that wraps up Tuesday of Holy Week. Thank you for listening. Father, as always, I do ask you to be with, present with your Holy Spirit, with your, with your believers, with your followers, with your children, that they would incorporate anything they've learned here, Father, in, into their lives as they go forth to live and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.